I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On November 24th, voters in Taiwan went to the polls to cast their votes for local leaders in nine different categories. The ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, which won the presidency and the majority in the legislative yuan in 2016, fared quite poorly. The DPP lost seven of the 13 municipal executive seats it held coming into the election, and it received about 2 million fewer votes than in the last local election, which was held in 2014. With us today to discuss Taiwan's midterm elections and their implications for Taiwan, U.S.-Taiwan relations, and cross-strait relations, we're happy to have Professor Shelley Rigger. Dr. Rigger is Brown Professor of East Asian Politics at Davidson College, where she has taught since 1993. Her most recent book is titled, Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island, Global Powerhouse. Thanks for being on the China Power Podcast today, Shelley. Happy to be with you. So let's start by talking about whether you were surprised by the results of the Taiwan election. What was surprising about this election for you? I was definitely surprised, and I, as far as I can tell, pretty much everybody else was surprised too, including the winners and the losers in Taiwan. The outcome of this election was not predicted really anywhere that I saw. And in fact, as recently as a month before the voting, big major players within the political parties were saying, well, you know, a couple seats might change hands at the level of the municipal executives. The DPP was kind of trying to lower expectations a little bit by saying, well, we could lose as many as three seats. Um, and it's likely that we might lose one or two. But the complete landslide that they experienced, I think, came as a total shock to them. And I know it came as a total shock to me. Well, we've been traveling together this week uh, with uh, a few other members of our delegation, first to Beijing and then to Shanghai, and now we are in Taipei. And one of the things, uh, the things, of course, we've been talking about is the um, election and one of and what the main reasons are that the DPP had such a staggering loss. So, based on your own research as well as what we've heard on this trip, what do you think were the main factors that led to the outcome? Uh, that really was a, a huge defeat for the DPP. One of the things that I find really interesting about this election is it is in some ways the first time that economic factors and kind of the bread and butter issues that we think of as determinative in politics really came to the fore in a Taiwanese election. So ever since Taiwan's democratization began in the 1970s and really got rolling in the 1980s, the main point of uh, cleavage between the two political parties and the kind of two sides of the political world has been related to the relationship between Taiwan and China, uh, both the China of today, the People's Republic of China, so how should Taiwan interact with uh, the mainland, and also the idea of China, like should Taiwan be thinking of itself as a Chinese place or as a Taiwanese place that has Taiwan in it, uh, that has China in its past, 
but is really on its own trajectory for the future. And this set of issues, sometimes we talk about it as cross-strait relations, sometimes we talk about it as uh, national identity, but that's been the kind of driver for most elections in the past. And I just think this time around, we can't explain the outcome by looking at that factor and that cleavage. We really have to look to something different, which is economic issues and kind of issues related to people's everyday life. One of the big issues that I think people were beginning to worry about in the DPP even a month or two before the election was the effect of a pension reform act that the DPP, now that it controls both the presidential office and the legislature, you know, they thought we can do this very important reform and it isn't it was an important reform because the pension system for retired civil servants and military personnel was totally unaffordable for Taiwan in the long run it was just way too generous and government the government of Taiwan has been trying to cut the pensions for years and years and years but it's politically costly no one dared to do it well Tsai Ing-wen the current president and her uh, legislative delegation stepped up and they did it. They cut the pensions and they cut them a lot. And that really came back to bite them in this election. The uh, retired public servants were very angry, really felt like they had lost out because of that change. And um, so that was one of the issues. But I think there were other issues, economic issues, that the DPP wasn't as aware of that also ended up really hurting them. One we've heard a lot about on this trip to Taiwan that I wasn't even really aware of before we got here was this decision to um, raise the, the, the environmental standards on motorcycles, which is the primary mode of transportation for working class people in Taiwan, especially outside of Taipei, where there's a great public transportation system in smaller cities and in rural areas, people really rely on these motorcycles. And uh, the fuel or the emissions standards require people to replace their less efficient and high, heavily polluting motorbikes with new motorbikes. And that's really expensive and it was very burdensome. And apparently a lot of people were really upset about um, being asked to do that. And that came at the same time as yet another legislative achievement, if you will, of the DPP that turned out to have been really politically costly, which was a change in the labor law that basically was designed to help workers by uh, creating a system of overtime and extra pay for overtime work. And a lot of Taiwanese workers rely on, or we find out now, now that the law is, it has come into operation, they were relying on overtime pay and they wanted to work more hours. They wanted to get more overtime. They wanted to work on Saturdays, every other Saturday. And so actually make, making the labor law more protective of workers' time made it less protective of workers' income. <laughs> and for people who wanted the money more than the time, 
This was bad news, so their income is falling at the same time that they're being asked to replace you know, one of the major household purchases that a working class family in Taiwan would make. So these bread and butter issues, I think they're really real. Um, but I think part of the reason we were also blindsided by this electoral result is we have gotten used to thinking about Taiwan elections along other dimensions. And so this was really something new. Now, when we were in mainland China, a lot of the Chinese scholars analyzed uh, the reasons for the DPP's poor showing the elections uh, in their uh, assessment of the economy and the downturn of the economy on a very macro level. And they drew connections between the downturn in the economy and the uh, lapse in cooperation between Taiwan and mainland China, and of course that uh, also being connected to President Tsai Ing-wen's refusal to accept the 1992 consensus. So do you think that the downturn in the cooperation across the strait in the economic realm uh, was a factor as well? Or do you think that the mainland scholars really just don't understand the real economic drivers of the election? I think there is a role for cross-strait economic interactions in this kind of political change or the change of the political climate, but it's a relatively minor factor compared to some of these other things. And I think where the where that kind of big picture economic, overall economic climate comes in is more at the level of people's discomfort with the direction things are going. So right now, Taiwan's uh, GDP growth is okay by global standards. The unemployment rate is really low. If you look around you, you see people enjoying a very high standard of living, at least in urban areas. Um, you know, this is this is not a country that is obviously in economic distress, but a lot of people expect that the good conditions that they're enjoying right now won't continue. They don't see that anybody has a clear vision for how to sustain Taiwan's prosperity into the future. And I think when, even though Tsai Ing-wen was elected in part because a lot of voters were nervous that Taiwan had become too dependent on the mainland for its economic growth and, and momentum, when they saw what happens when the PRC is kind of punishing Taiwan for for not being close enough or not voting for the right kind of candidate, that's unnerving too. You know, the whole thing is just unnerving. People know that their economy has to keep riding the front end of the technological wave and the global competitiveness wave, Taiwan can't afford to fall behind because it's a small economy that's trying to support a very high income society. Um, and, and so I think it's more the kind of growing sense of unease with the overall economic direction of the country. And so you can kind of punctuate that with specific things that happen as a result of the breakdown of the relationship with the mainland, like 
the number of Chinese tourists coming to Taiwan was very much diminished after Tsai Ing-wen became president. Some people would say, we didn't like those Chinese tourists anyway. You know, they, they just stayed at Hong Kong-owned hotels and rode in Hong Kong-owned buses. And, you know, we weren't really making any money off that anyway. But I think the, the realization that somebody's missing, you know, that there were crowds of people two years ago in places where there are no longer crowds of people. And you've got this message coming at you all the time from the PRC that Taiwan's in trouble because the economic relationship is breaking down. I think that does kind of get into people's heads. And so while I don't think that was you know, I don't think very many people went into the voting booth and said, I'm going to vote for the for some KMT dude for my county executive because Tsai Ing-wen didn't, won't say 92 consensus. But I do think it's part of the overall environment in which people are making this decision. And it changes the way they see the sort of catalytic events like the Pension Reform Act and all the other stuff. One other factor that I'd like to ask you about is the um, alleged PRC interference in the election. And that's something that the Tsai Ing-wen government um, has charged, uh, although there has not yet been any real evidence uh, that has uh, been presented. But the government here is investigating this. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the nature of the PRC interference and how important you think it was in the election? Yeah, you know, we have to be really careful to differentiate between interference and influence. We know that the PRC is constantly trying to influence the thinking of people in Taiwan about a wide range of issues. And they do this through statements that they make, through sort of psychological warfare things that they do, you know, military maneuvers that are aimed at making people in Taiwan think, you know, maybe maybe something really bad is going to happen. They also exercise their influence through the mass media in Taiwan, uh, which is very sympathetic in many cases, not in all cases. Uh, But there are a number of media outlets that are very sympathetic to the PRC view of the relationship and the the PRC's interpretation of what's going on in Taiwan and what Taiwanese should should be doing. Um, So I think absolutely at that level, you know, the PRC tried to kind of shape that context for people. Although I also think that in this case, they were, that is to say, uh, the Beijing government was pretty careful not to be too heavy handed because they've seen that, you know, if they come out pounding their fist on the table and scolding Taiwanese people, you know, you got to vote this way or that way, that backfires. So they've become a lot better at doing this in a more subtle way and doing it through voices that have a Taiwanese accent. Uh, But another piece of the election nearing this year that I think is a new development is in social media, there does seem to be some evidence to suggest that uh, social media participants in the mainland, in Hong Kong, uh, injected messages 
into the discourse in Taiwan. So um, someone told us just today about a Taiwanese blogger, you know, uh, social media personality who had made a statement on social media and uh, there were a million uh, critical comments on that, that's that Facebook post. You don't get a million comments in Taiwan unless there's somebody who's generating those uh, on purpose. So there's there's that too. But I think, again, I've been really struck and, and honestly impressed by the sophistication of the response to that here with several people saying to us, but we realize that social media it's a it's an echo chamber. People pretty much see what they're going to see anyway. You know, they stay within their um, their bubbles, their respective bubbles on social media. But when the social media injections become an issue, is when the real media, the mainstream media, pick them up and report them as news. So that was something that was happening. And then there is this third level, which would be direct interference. And uh, this would be things like channeling money toward political candidates and channeling money or other benefits toward local political organizers with the idea that they would understand that their job was to act on behalf of candidates preferred by the PRC. And I think it's going to be hard for anybody to figure out how much of that actually happened. But I think there's, there's at least one channel that we have high confidence is being used in this way. And that is this connection between, um, folks in the PRC who are trying to influence Taiwan politics and organized crime in Taiwan and this political party, the uh, China Unification Party, which is associated with organized crime, associated with uh, the actors on the mainland, and which also has a lot of tentacles into temples and temples can be really important in local political mobilization. So I don't think anybody's going to vote against their interests because, you know, the the guy from the temple said they should. But when you're already mad at the DPP over economic issues and you're nervous about the economy and you had a really Uh, abundant crop of pineapples this year as they did in Taiwan and it's hard to sell them because you know it's overproduction and then somebody from the temple says you know why don't you vote for this KMT candidate you know it's the total package so I don't know how much of that kind of direct interference there was but certainly people in Taiwan are quite worried about that now. I want to ask you about how you see the uh, the Guomindang, the KMT, at this moment. In 2016, when the KMT was defeated, many people thought that the KMT was finished as a party um, and that there might not be any major opposition party. 
uh, and that the DPP could be the ruling party for many years to come. Some people were drawing analogies with Japan and the LDP. Um, and here we are only two years later, and the KMT performed quite well in this election. So what does that tell you about the KMT and its prospects in the future? Is it back in the game? And is the KMT potentially a viable candidate for uh, uh, for the presidential election, which is only 13 months away? Could they win? So the fact that it's only 13 months away is just so crazy to think about that because, you know, we are on this absolute whirlwind schedule with Taiwan all the time when it comes to elections. But, you know, I made a big mistake in 2000 after the 2000 presidential election when the KMT was defeated for the first time and the party actually split the long time uh, head of the KMT, Lee Dunghui, broke off. He, he quit the party. He got involved with another party. I said, I said then that the KMT was dead. Well, they, they bounced back from that one. So I was smart enough not to make that mistake again in 2016. But I think I've also gotten smarter in another way, which is to realize that the institutional setup that Taiwan has absolutely requires a second party. It's hard to be a third party in this system because it's mainly a majoritarian electoral system, but you really you really need two parties for it to work. And the KMT has a brand and it has an organization and it has a network. And I think that those things have been of less utility in the last couple of elections, but they did not disappear. And so I think in this go round, you know, the, the KMT brand was available for a new set of candidates to come in and say, you know, you can trust us, we're a real party, we're not some, you know, crazy thing out of left field. And furthermore, you know, we can avail ourselves of some of these existing networks and institutions, which in some cases have been either sort of turned off or muted or even turned over to the DPP because in a lot of cases the KMT uh, competition is internal to the party and so I think you know I think it has a lot more staying power than people were giving it credit for in 2016. The other thing I want to just kind of throw out and our friends who are listening can decide whether they think this is crazy or not but i think one of the one of the reasons the kmt did better this time around was that the the party was not as focused on this election as they normally are they they didn't think they were going to win and they didn't think it was very important. It's not a national election. And they kind of let nature take its course in a lot of ways. They wound up with these candidates that no one had ever heard of, or no one had ever heard of in a long time. You know, They have a background in politics, but they were not leading national figures at all. But they stepped forward and said, you know, I wanna run. And so the party, instead of saying, no, 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 we've got somebody else in mind, sit down, shut up, wait your turn. They said, well, okay, you want to be the sacrificial lamb in Kaohsiung? Hang you knock yourself out. And those guys did great. So I think one of the lessons that we can take from this is that when the KMT actually lets democracy work and lets the energy that people can bring to the party flourish, it works. 
Let's talk a little bit about the 10 uh, referenda that were on the ballot. And the referendum law was changed so that fewer signatures were required to get a referendum on the ballot, and then the threshold for it actually passing uh, was lower, and they ended up with 10. Um, and uh, it seems to me that this was rather a chaotic test of direct democracy um, uh, in Taiwan. So uh, maybe you can talk about a few of them. There was one on nuclear energy and one on food safety, and one that the mainland was particularly worried about was potentially changing the name of Taiwan's Olympic team uh, to be Taiwan instead of Chinese Taipei. So what do you make of all of these referenda? Yeah, first of all, lowering the threshold, making it easier to to put a referendum on the ballot and then to pass a referendum was a classic own goal by the DPP, right? The DPP has this longstanding problem of overestimating how progressive this society is. This is a conservative society, by and large. People don't, they, they take a lot of risks in business, but in the rest of their life, they, they don't like to take a lot of risks and certainly not in politics. But the, the DPP has always imagined, um, you know, for decades, that if they could only put the issues before the voters, that the voters would throw off the conservative shackles that the KMT has locked them into and, and do great things. So the DPP has, has for, for a long time, wanted to use referendum more in order to break through what they saw as the sort of constraining power of institutions. Well, so this year they got their wish and they got clobbered almost across the board. Everything, and, and a lot of these things were, were actually not put forward by the DPP, but they were DPP looking items. They were the kinds of things that the DPP is supposed to want. And they just one after another went down to defeat. So the, the most inflammatory from the PRC's point of view was the one you just mentioned to change the name of the Olympic team to, to Taiwan. This is in line with the idea that, you know, Taiwan needs to, to establish itself as a, a more fully differentiated, aka independent, country in the world, you know, uh, we need to change our name, we need to change our flag. These are things that people have been talking about forever. But this particular variant of that idea was really light, you know, just change the name for the Olympics. Um, what's the worst thing that can happen? We don't get to be in the Olympics. And it went down hard because most people are not interested in sacrificing anything, even the opportunity to participate in the Olympics in order to make this kind of symbolic gesture that the whole rest of the world is going to say is rash and unnecessary and reckless. They uh, also were defeated on a signature piece of their agenda as a party from day one, which is to anti-nuclear power. Um, They've been pushing for a nuclear-free Taiwan, and the voters just said, you know, we don't want a nuclear-free Taiwan. We want a stable energy supply, and that's an economic thing. But it also split the environmental movement because with climate change, you have people now saying nuclear is better than coal. 
So something that, that used to be a straight up green proposition, get rid of nuclear energy, is now complicated in the environmental movement. So that split the DPP's kind of traditional uh, support base. And then the other one where they just way overestimated the progressiveness of the society was same-sex marriage. Um, the conservatives put an anti-same-sex marriage referendum on the ballot. That one passed. Progressives put a pro-same-sex marriage proposition on the ballot, and that one failed. Taiwan was this close to being the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage, and they didn't do it in the legislature when they could have done it in the legislature because they were worried about paying a political price. Well, now they've lost the opportunity to do it. They've been rebuked by the voters, and they still paid a political price. So it's really, uh, I think the referendums were in some ways the worst part of the election for the DPP because they put their, not the DPP itself, but, but advocates for DPP leaning positions, put those positions before the voters and said, are you with us or against us? And the voters by and large said, we're against you. And that's really awful. So. Since we were just in Beijing and Shanghai, maybe you can summarize a little bit Beijing's reaction to the election and how you think that the results are going to affect cross-strait relations going forward. Well, I thought they were weirdly unhappy given that they got everything they wanted in this election, <laughs> right? The party that they were really, the, you know, the, the PRC, the the two things that they're most worried about in the sort of immediate term are the collapse of the KMT so that they have no one to work with on this side and that Taiwan would, would go for independence. So in this election, the KMT made this amazing comeback. So clearly the Chinese Communist Party has an interlocutor in Taiwan. They do not need to worry about the KMT disappearing. And the voters voted down the closest thing they've ever been offered to an independence referendum. You know, they said, we do not want to change the name of the country. So this sounded like excellent news to me. I thought we would go to Beijing and they would be, you know, parading in the streets in triumph. But they're so worried about getting Taiwan wrong about missing something and having a bad surprise that they seemed really very muted in their enthusiasm for this happy surprise that they got this time around. So I think it, I think it will give them some opportunities that they can work with over the next few years. Uh, in particular, having 15 KMT leaders in different municipalities in Taiwan offers a lot of opportunities to do sort of city-to-city -city, uh, engagement uh, that lets the, lets the PRC get back into Taiwan, but bypassing the central government, which they don't want to work with. So I think there are, they will find ways for this election result to have really concrete benefits 
for Beijing's strategy of continuing to be engaged with Taiwan without actually having to um, deal with the government, the national government. Uh, but at the moment, they are surprisingly grumpy um, given the magnitude of their success. Well, they're, they have a tendency to fear the worst and prepare for the worst, yeah. uh, which is what they, are, what they are doing. And as they look forward to the election in, uh, in uh, uh, 2020, they are very, very concerned about the potential for things to go very badly and another referendum that could be pro-independence. So my last question is about um, whether you think the election outcome matters for Taiwan's relations with the United States and whether you think U.S. policy toward Taiwan will be affected in any way. You know, that's a really a question that you're better able to answer than I am. Um, I think for the U.S., it's comforting to know that Taiwan is functioning as a two-party democratic system where normal things happen like turnovers in power, that we're not seeing the entrenchment of the DPP in a way that might open the possibility that the more ideological or or radical elements in the DPP would begin to be emboldened by their success to say, we should try more things. Uh, so I think in general, it this result is consistent with longstanding US expectations and therefore is unlikely itself to make much of a difference in US policy, but I don't know if you would agree. I think I would agree. I think that the U.S.-Taiwan relationship um, will not be greatly affected uh, by this uh, election. The United States will work with whoever the people of Taiwan choose, um, whether that is in local elections or in their national elections. Uh, even if uh, individuals within government have a preference, uh, wh whoever the people elect, uh, we, we have always worked with. And uh, I don't think that anybody can really credibly uh, accuse the United States of seeking to uh, shape a specific outcome uh, in, uh, in Taiwan, even though the PRC may believe that we're doing that. Well, this is terrific. Um, we are here in Taipei um, talking with experts here, but uh, it was great to hear your analysis uh, of the elections and their implications. And we've been talking with uh, Dr. Shelley Rigger, who is Brown Professor of East Asian Politics at Davidson Colleges. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Mm -hmm.